Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1 where Larry just read for us. Taking a momentary detour from John's Gospel to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we are so grateful that Your Word has been given to us, preserved for us. And that within this Word lies the greatest power known in all of eternity. Certainly the greatest power in this world. And that is the power of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves and saves eternally to the uttermost. This text this morning, Father, is of such imperative nature. I ask that You would allow its weight to fall upon each of our minds. Holy Spirit, that by it, then You would transform every heart. That we would leave this place with a sense of awe over who Christ is, over what Christ has done, rejoicing in the hope of the Gospel that is Jesus Christ, the good news. So Father, open ears. Give clear minds. Soften hearts. And Holy Spirit, take the Word which You inspired and do what only You can do with it now. This is Your Word. Use it for Your purposes, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Paul writes, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So dear friends, tell me this. What one thing does your life depend on? What's the one thing that your life revolves around this morning? What, what makes your life worth living? What causes you to rise every morning? What's the source of your life? What, what makes your life precious to you? What, what is, defines you? Or maybe we could ask it another way. If that thing or if anything was missing, what, what would make your life, in your estimation, no longer worth living? 
What, what is it that you would say, you know, if that was taken away from me, I just don't know what I would do. I, I think life for me at that point would just be over. I would have no drive. Nothing would define me. You might be saying, O'Brien, you just read from Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. What's with the self-help questions? But these are not the musings of the most recent best-selling self-help book. This question, these questions are answered by the Apostle Paul here in Romans 1, 16 and 17 as the pounding pulse of Paul's life. This is what drives Paul. The answer to the questions I ask for the Apostle Paul and for every believer ought to be singular in nature. The answer to the questions, what is the most important thing in your life? Should be this. Salvation. Being made right with God. To whom I will give an account. To be covered by the work and the righteousness of Jesus Christ in my place. For I know what my works have produced. This is the thing that if it were not for this, life truly would not be worth living. This is the one thing, Christian. This is the seminal doctrine that was recovered in mass, in large, during the Protestant Reformation. A movement that we remember each year as having its formal beginning on October 31st, 1517. It's not about Halloween. It's about a man with a hammer, a nail, and 95 complaints. About aberrant heretical teaching that he nailed to a church door in Germany and lit the world on fire. We ask ourselves the question, what made that man do that? I'll tell you plainly, it was Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul has been building to a crescendo in the first 15 verses of this Gospel. I will tell you, having preached through Romans, and many of you were here for that wonderful journey through this book that took us four and a half years to get through. Paul's the only guy that can take the plane off at 35,000 feet and go higher. But that's what he does. In Romans 1, verse 1, he takes off. He wastes no time. He's already at a crescendo out of the gate, but it just gets higher and hotter for the Apostle Paul. And when he comes to verse 15, he is already at his first pivotal moment. He has thanked God for the gospel. He has thanked God for the work among the believers in Rome already to this point. He has rehearsed the glories of what the gospel is in seed form already. And when he gets to verse 15, he says, So... So I guess this is what I'm saying. I, for my part, am eager 
to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Now, had they not heard it? No, they'd heard it. But Paul says, I am eager to get there and preach it to you again. That tells me one thing, Christian. This is a letter written to Christians. It is therefore imperative that Christians hear the gospel. It's what's driving Paul. It's his heartbeat. It's, he, he has reached a crescendo. So, so all of this just makes me want to get there and to preach to you. I have a burning desire within me to preach the gospel to you. And this is not some inept gospel. This is not just a story. This is not just some legal exercise to make sure we've got our I's dotted and our T's crossed so that we can say we are theologically correct, which is important. That's not it at all. Paul has a burning desire to preach the gospel to his fellow Christians in Rome, and then he tells us why. Tells us why. And that why is revealed in the following verses, beginning in verse 16, with four clauses that tell you why Paul wants to preach so badly to people who are already believers about that which made them believers. We'll only get to two of them this morning, and it's verses 16 and 17. But Paul says four. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome because, for, I am not ashamed of that which I will preach to you. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You need to know one thing. I'm not ashamed. Why, Paul? You told us why you want to preach the gospel. Because you're not ashamed of it. Because you believe certain things about it. But why is that the case? Why aren't you ashamed, Paul? Why do you believe what you believe about the gospel? For, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So I can't wait to get there. And in Baptist parlance, y'all just bring your dinner on the grounds because we're going to be here for a while. I've got things to say. And you've got things you need to hear. And so this morning, I want us to consider two forces that drive the Apostle Paul in these two verses that ought to drive us as well. And that, historically speaking, are the two things that drove our forebears in the time of the Protestant Reformation to do what they did. Truths that drove them, some of them, to an early grave. Early from our perspective, not by God's. He numbers all of our days. And so first of all, in verse 16 this morning, we read that there is a force of glory that drives the Apostle Paul. A force of glory. One commentator colloquially commented and paraphrased the Apostle Paul by saying, I am mighty proud of the gospel. That, that sounds really good in the South. It's catchy, but it's deficient. Paul says, I, he doesn't say, I'm proud of the gospel. I, I'm, you know, I love the gospel. Paul starts by quite the opposite. Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. Well, 
Paul, that's an odd statement, you know? It's like introducing your wife to somebody and saying, I'm not ashamed of her. Why would you be? Paul just launches right out of the gate with somewhat of a jarring statement. I've told you, I, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you. And we're, we're sitting there with our hands out ready. Okay, this is going to be good. He's going to tell us why. And the first thing he says is, I'm not ashamed of it. I have no shame in what I'm about to do. You just need to know this. Everything that comes after, no shame in what I'm going to say. No caveats. <laughs> no qualifications. Straight, unvarnished truth. And I'm not ashamed of that. You just need to hear it. You need to hear the truth. The gospel in Paul's day, and can I say this to you as well, Christian, as it is in our own day, as it has been in every age, was and is and will remain to be the scorn of the world. The world hates the gospel. The religious hate it, and the non-religious hate it. There is a hatred of the gospel, but listen to Paul. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. The Roman culture of Paul's day, you have to remember, was an exceedingly proud culture. It was very akin to the caste system of India. There were classes of citizens, classes of people who lived in Rome that couldn't become citizens. There was a class structure that was created of which people were very proud. It was based in an honor-shame paradigm. That there was great honor associated with some and great shame associated with others. And so there was this, this whole mentality of a caste system of things that were graded, if you will, on the basis of was it an honorable thing or a shameful thing. Rome was filled with not only the pagan Gentiles, but also the religious Jews. The Jews rejected the gospel because in it the deity of Christ is fundamental, paramount, and non-negotiable. To them, to speak of a cross was abject failure. The Old Testament tells us that cursed is every man who dies on a tree. Therefore, in the Jewish mind, Jesus died on the tree. Something was wrong with Jesus. The message of a resurrection to at least part of the Jews, the Sadducees, was an utter fallacy and fairy tale. To the pagan Gentiles in Rome, they rejected the foolishness of a human Savior. They lived by the hedonism of the day. Live and let live. They rejected the idea of sin and judgment as foolish. They denied the possibility of a resurrection as something supernatural that could not be grasped in human understanding. And so therefore it was to be rejected. And preaching... What a foolish exercise. How crude preaching was regarded in Paul's day. How dare these uneducated, not in Paul's case, but in the other apostles' case, these 
uneducated men get up and make bold assertions and propositional statements of truth rather than engaging us in the schools of rhetoric, wisdom, and logic. That's why Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God. Does that sound like Romans 1.16? The power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is is stronger than men. The gospel cuts against man's pride. The gospel strips man of his self-sufficiency. The gospel that Paul is coming to preach in Rome contains nothing of man, but provides everything for men. And if you haven't noticed, we don't like that. One of the hardest things about growing old, I've observed, is having to have people do things for you. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes having their dignity and self-sufficiency taken from them, do they? Those are the hardest discussions families will ever have to have. You can't do this anymore. You're going to need somebody to do that, but we don't like that. It hurts. It is unnatural to us. Why? Because our pride wants to always feel as though I can rely upon myself. And the gospel comes in and it says you can't do anything for yourself. You've never been able to do anything for yourself. Christ must do everything for you. I don't like that. I need to feel that I have something, as Paul would say at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, to boast in. Wait a minute, I need room for credibility here. And so for this reason, it is shameful to the proud. But it's not shameful to those who are honest. To those who admit what they are, admit what they need, admit who God is, admit what Christ is, and what He has done. It is not Shame to them. And Paul finds himself in that camp of the honest. The proud are deceived and the honest are freed. Paul, by the humbling grace of God, is not ashamed of this gospel of which man contributes nothing but the sin which makes it necessary. To be ashamed of the gospel is unthinkable to any of us who have been changed by it. 
The word ashamed means to, to experience a painful feeling or sensation of loss. Particularly loss of one's status. John Murray, the British theologian, wrote, The emotion of shame with reference to the gospel when confronted with the pretensions of human wisdom and power betrays unbelief in the truth of the gospel and the absence of shame is the proof of faith. Paul says, I have no shame in this. Who was Paul? Remember who Paul was. Go read Philippians chapter 3. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee with zeal unmatched. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher in his day. Paul had every credential, every diploma hanging on his office wall. And yet Paul says, I am not ashamed of this humbling reality that we call the gospel. And so Paul, for his part, according to verse 15, he's so kind, he's so eager, he's so zealous, he wants to get to these people and preach it to them. He wants to invade the very heart of a culture of pride. The very seat of this Greco-Roman world with a message for the humble. The gospel would bring temporary suffering for Paul, but it would bring no shame. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of me, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the, again, the power of God. It's an operative theme in Paul's theology, this power of God that never fails and never stops. A few verses later, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Here we have a, just a little glimpse into Romans 1.17. It is faith that characterizes Paul. It is immovable trust. In God because of who he is. Paul is not ashamed. He's not going to be moved. He's not going to quit. He's not going to pull back. He's not going to hesitate to tell people the truth. He's not going to hesitate to come to Rome. And to encourage these Christians. With the message of the cross. Of a risen Savior. Paul is not ashamed. And now he tells us why he is not ashamed. Look at your. Bibles again, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God. There is no shame in that which is the power of God that yields salvation. Paul says, what would there possibly... It's almost like he turns it on, 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 on them. He can almost anticipate the question that, well, Paul, why wouldn't you be ashamed? I mean, this is kind of new message and it goes cuts against the grain of pride, cuts against the grain of culture. Paul, shouldn't you be a little? I, I mean, why? Why would I? Do you understand what I'm talking about? I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God. Are you ashamed of God? then you're not ashamed of the gospel. If you're ashamed of the gospel, you're ashamed of God. Paul says the the two are inextricably linked. The shame is not on the one who believes, but on the one who does not believe. 
Shame on you for not seeing this. Shame on you for rejecting this. What does Paul mean by the power of God? I, I love this. The power of God communicates concrete truths that are the bedrock of every believer. If it is God's power, it's exclusive power. No one else can have it. If it's God's power, it's not found anywhere else. It's not in Rome. It's not in your good works. It's not in your religious heritage. It's not in anything other than in God. It is God's power. If it is God's power, it's unchanging power. It operates at all times at maximum power. God doesn't change. Think about it. The very power of God. Just stop and let your mind wonder sometimes, Christian. What power are we talking about here? Oh, I don't know. The power that spoke the world into existence. Power that makes enemies of God into friends of God. Power that transformed this very apostle from stoning Christians to preaching to Christians. The very power of God that raises the dead. The very power of God that turns lives around. That power, yeah, that's the same power. And Paul says, I'll tell you why I'm not ashamed of it. You tell me one other thing that does that and then we'll talk. There is nothing else outside the operative, unfailing power of God. Our very breath is proof of that. Your next heartbeat is proof of the unfailing power of God. Paul says, how can I be ashamed? How could you be ashamed? There's no shame in that kind of power. What's shameful is that you think you have that kind of power and you don't. That's what's sad. No, no shame in power that takes away God's judgment. No shame in a power that grants life through the Son, Jesus Christ. Who, oh, by the way, is also, according to John's Gospel, where we've been the last year, Jesus is a perfect demonstration of the power of God, born of a virgin. The very Word of God incarnate come to... I mean, really? Greatest example? Paul says, I'm not ashamed because the Gospel is the power of God that leads sinners to salvation. This is salvation from sin, and that's what Paul's about to go into beginning in verse 18 down through chapter 3. Paul's going to be at great pains to show you why you need this Gospel. And Paul has already predicated his statement here by talking about the gospel. Again, like I said, he just can't get there quick enough, so he starts in verse 2. Look at verse 2. This is the gospel of God, verse 1, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture. So it's a, it's a gospel that's already been validated. It was prophesied thousands of years before. Now it's fulfilled. In verse 3, we see that it was accomplished by God's Son coming in humanity, true humanity. 
concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He took on our humanity. He tasted life as we know it, yet without sin. Every temptation, yet without sin. Verse 4, he proved to be victorious and true because he was raised from the dead, who was declared to be the Son of God with power. Ah, same word, verse 16. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 6, it was applied to all who believe in God's gracious, unfailing work. Listen. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You know this to be true, Christian. You've experienced it just as well as I. And These are the immovable, op- inoperable uh, truths that that are unchanging that paul says how can i be ashamed of that think about what christ has done how can you be ashamed of that this is what saves you jeffrey wilson points out that this power of god cannot be conditioned God doesn't need anything to help it along. God doesn't need help making it effective by anything that we do. It just is what it is. The simplicity of it is blinding. It's so glorious. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It alone is the power of God unto salvation. That's why I want to come preach to you. Hey, brothers and sisters, the gospel doesn't need help. It needs heralds. The gospel doesn't need programs. It needs proclamation. The gospel doesn't need creative arts of expression. It needs courageous acts of exposition. Open your mouth and say it. That's what turned the world upside down in Acts. That is what will turn the world upside down in our day. That is what turned the world upside down in the Protestant Reformation. The preaching of Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. No frills, no bells, no whistles, Christ. Why? That's the power of God. It doesn't need help. It doesn't need little trinkets. To trick people into listening to what you want to tell them. My heart breaks. And my frustration level rises. When I see the state of Christianity, not just in Martin Luther's day, but in our own day. When we act like Jesus isn't enough. When we seem to think that we've got to add some gimmicks here to get people to listen. You know, we need to do things to appeal. Paul just walked in and started preaching. The apostles in the book of Acts didn't go to a conference on how to creatively infiltrate a pagan culture. They just went to Mars Hill and said, hey, listen, let me talk. Hey, everybody gather around. We're going to have a little discussion. 
I see this God and I see that God and I see that one. What about this one to the unknown God? Let's talk about him. And then, here we go. Straight to Christ, straight to the cross, straight to the resurrection. Paul says, I'm not ashamed to do that with anybody. How ashamed are you? Well, you almost get the idea nowadays that evangelism needs to be somewhat like a comedy club. You know, you have an opening act that sends somebody out to warm the crowd up. Make them a little more receptive. Paul says, I'm just coming in. And I'm coming in hot. I'm going to land the plane and as soon as the door opens, I'm preaching. And I'm preaching Christ and I'm preaching the power of God. It needs nothing. It blows my mind, Christian, that, that Satan can so easily lull us into to the reality that, we, well... You know, we need to win hearts and minds first. I'm not telling you to be rude. I'm not telling you to be tacky. But I am telling you not to soft pedal or compromise or act as if our message is weak. It is the power of God that leads to salvation. Nothing else does. So why waste your time? Get to the heart of the matter. Get to what really matters I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes without distinction. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, American or Roman. Who cares? It saves. And you have to stop and think, whoo, I bet that raised some eyebrows. Remember what I said about Rome? Oh, yeah, you're that group, you stay over there. Oh, you're that group, you stay over there. Oh, you're this group, come on up front. They had the fear of man running out their ears. And Paul says, I'm here to tell you one thing. It saves this group, it saves that group, and it'll save this group. It is without prejudice. It is the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. I don't care if you're Jew or Greek, it'll save you. Nothing which was deemed by them to be most important now has any bearing on what Paul's about to say to them. So we're classless here, Paul? Yeah, you're all sinners. That's the class we're all in. So let's talk about the solution to your problem. It has no respect of men, and I'm unafraid to preach it to any man. Greek or Jew, old or young, educated or uneducated, I don't care. I'm just coming to preach this triumphant message because the reality is that God, a God of glory, has triumphed over death and your sin and you need to hear about it. The glory of God, the force of glory that is wrapped up in Paul's flaming desire to preach to them. The glory of God is revealed in the gospel as the very opposite of shame. It is glory. It is glory. Let's pretend and go back to our two-year-old selves. Why? But why, Paul? 
Why is that the case? Verse 17. I'll tell you why. And in telling you why, I'll tell you what the gospel is. I'll tell you what you must believe. I'll tell you what your only hope is. And thus enters the second force, and that is a force of hope. Mankind, you and I, Paul, the Romans, every human being that has ever been born by natural generation, that would mean the only one who isn't is Jesus, has been born so mired in sin, so devoid of hope, that even daring to hope like Paul's about to speak just brings more despair. You ever been there? You ever been there? Like You're, you're a little down about this, that, or the other. And you're discouraged about something. And you run into somebody in town. And what you're struggling with or what you're discouraged about the very opposite has just happened to them and they, they just want you to know about how great life is. And they're just going to tell you about how life's going so grand for them and how wonderful it is. And hey, if you would just do steps one, two, and three, you could, you could accomplish this for you. And, and you leave and you just go, oh, I wish I'd not seen that person. I'm even more discouraged than I was when I walked in. I don't even dare to dream like that. It just makes me more discouraged. We all know what that's like. It's literally that far beyond us what Paul is talking about. The hope of being right with God. With God, a holy God, not being angry with us. Not condemning us. Not storing up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath, as Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans. Not doing that towards us anymore. But loving us and being right with us and calling us His sons and daughters. That's just too much to hope for. And I don't even want to get my hopes up because I know what that leads to. Greater disappointment. Paul says, I'm here to tell you about a hope that takes that out of the equation. I'm here to tell you how it will happen. I'm here to help tell you how it can happen. Part of what makes the, good, the gospel good news is this. What Paul says, look, for in it, for in this gospel that I'm not afraid to proclaim. God has revealed His own righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed. Two miraculous things about that one little phrase need to be considered at this point. The first of which is that God revealed it. I said in the Sunday school hour, you know, we all live and breathe the air and drink the water of the world in which we live at the time that we live in such a way that there's probably more of that culture and that world in us than we would care to admit. And I think one of the ways that that's manifest to us, particularly in the West, particularly in America in our day and age, is that somehow we feel like God's obligated to speak. And God's obligated to reveal Himself. And He's absolutely not. He's God. 
Psalm 115.3, he is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't have to do anything. And yet we have such an entitlement mentality that, oh yeah, 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 God, God would have had to have done. No, he, he doesn't. He could have remained distant. He could have never said anything. He could have created and said, boy, you guys really dropped the ball on that. No more silence. But he doesn't. Paul says he reveals his own righteousness. He's not obligated and yet he does so graciously in grace towards us. He makes himself known. And more than that, he has offered himself to us in his son. You don't have to do that. But he does. Anything that you know this morning about God, you know because of God. He revealed it in His Word. You don't know it by your own intelligence. You don't know it by your own efforts. You don't know it by your own experience. You know it because God says it in His Word. Have you ever stopped to think about this humbling reality? You cannot uncover what God conceals. Just think about that. What God has chosen to conceal, you will never uncover. You can scream and beat on the door all you want. You can demand all you want. God's obligated to nothing. What God chooses to conceal, man will never uncover. And by the way, the very opposite of that is true when it comes to our sin. What God decides to reveal, man can never cover. God is not concealed in darkness, though. Paul says he has revealed his own righteousness out of grace he's made his righteousness known god is not concealed in darkness that we wouldn't know him no god reveals himself in light remember we're the ones who conceal in darkness according to what we studied last sunday morning in john 3 19 and 20 men love darkness rather than light because it's our deeds that are evil Rather, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, God Himself dwells in unapproachable light. He is light, according to John 1. According to John 3, He is a light that exposes not only Himself, but us. And men love darkness rather than light. We can never look at God and say, it's your fault, you didn't show us. No, He showed us, we don't like it. And and Paul says, listen, God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it the righteousness of God has been revealed. He has spoken. And He has spoken according to Hebrews chapter 1 in these latter days in one who is His Son. None of us knows why God would do that. But many of us are unspeakably grateful that he has. For some unknown reason, some grace greater than our comprehension, God stepped beyond the veil of that unapproachable light and made himself known through his Son who came as the offspring of David. 
And I want you to notice something else that Paul speaks of here that we just covered as well in John chapter 1, verse 17. This is not that when we read the righteousness of God, and it's not wrong, but it's incomplete to say, well, that means his judgment. Well, that, that's part of his judgment. Don't make any mistake about that. But his righteousness goes far beyond his judgment to his salvation. Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. John 1.17 But that the world through Him might be saved. That's the context of what Paul is dealing with in Romans 1.17. It is the righteousness of God that has been revealed not for damnation, but for salvation. Why? Because the end of the verse tells us this, that the righteous man is going to live. This is what stops us in our track. This is what shapes eternity for us. This is what lights Paul's heart on fire. This is what turned the world upside down in the Reformation. God revealed His righteousness to save. It's like sitting... You've, gone to, you've been told by the doctor that you have cancer. Or at least it's suspected that you do. You go to the hospital. You go through surgery to remove the mass. You fear the doctor's entrance in the recovery room. Because you know that WebMD says X percentage, it's cancer. And you wait as you're coming out of recovery and the doctor walks in. And you begin to perspire. And he looks at you and he smiles and he says, it's benign. It's not cancer. And some of you have lived through that and your heart just... And Paul says, I'm here with good news. The righteousness of God is here to save you. You knew what it could have said when it walked through the door. You knew what it would have been right to say when it walked through the door. You knew that it would have been justified in dropping you straight into hell. But it's not for that It's come for your salvation as well. How? How? How did it it change so quickly? Because it is God revealed in righteousness. His defining, one of His defining characteristics. But it is for salvation. And it is in God and it flows out of God. Let that sink in. God purposed to save people by revealing His own power and righteousness towards us, not against us. It's for you. Prior to the Reformation and the recovery of this doctrine of salvation by faith alone, God revealing His righteousness could only have meant 
further condemnation as a fixed reality of judgment against us. You would go to the Roman churches of the medieval world and they would talk about this great God who's angry with sinners. There was no hope. There was damnation, but no salvation. There was a Jesus on a cross, but no Jesus from an empty tomb. There was no hope. But Paul says there is hope because the righteousness of God is revealed at this time at least for our salvation. There's no need to despair. But there is every reason to believe. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by His doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. He became the righteousness of God to us that we might be made right with God. We can walk right into the very presence of God through the Son now and receive not judgment, but acceptance. And not just cold acceptance, but the adoption of sons and daughters, whereby we cry, Father, Abba. Paul is unashamed of the gospel because of this. It's not some gimmick. It's not some other religion. It is Christ set forth. It is Christ manifested. It is Christ revealed for our salvation. Did you know this in the Old Testament? That when the Old Testament speaks of God's righteousness, it almost exclusively does so in the context of God being faithful. See, Paul's drawing on that. He's talking to a congregation that's about half Jewish, they get this. Oh, you're talking about the faithful God. The God of the covenant. The God of unfailing, faithful, covenant, loving kindness. This is good news. This is the best news. You see, God, in the one sense, His righteousness requires that He punish sin. But in a positive sense, he provides salvation from that punishment. Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or as a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed. God doesn't just ignore sin. No, God punishes sin his righteousness is revealed against sin but for those who believe it's not against them it was against his son who stood in their place so that paul can then write in the next verse in verse 26 of romans 3 for the demonstration i say of his righteousness here it is in a different context so that at the present time he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel reveals the righteousness of 
of God against sin and for sinners. Only God can do that. You understand that, right? Only God can punish with unmitigated wrath and at the same time use that same action to demonstrate His greatest love, Romans 5.8, towards sinners. Who can do that but God? Paul says, that's why I'm not ashamed of what I'm going to come and preach to you. I won't be ashamed to say it to you. I won't be ashamed to say it to those on the way. I won't be ashamed to say it to those outside the church who happen to be in Rome as well. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the miraculous power of God leading to salvation both for Jew and for Greek to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness, the saving power of God has been revealed to sinners. From faith to faith. To those who will believe in Christ. This gospel is for them. By punishing Him. The gospel is for you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Because Christ was punished in your place. Martin Luther wrote this, that the righteousness God, that Paul speaks of here means not the righteousness by which he is righteous in himself, but the righteousness which we are made righteous by God. Doug Moo says it refers to God's salvific intervention on behalf of his people. He steps in the way, he intervenes to save his people. God steps in the path of his own wrath. That's the gospel. God steps in the path of his own wrath to shield the undeserving so that it might be turned to grant forgiveness instead of punishment to them. How could that ever be true of us? How could that ever then be applied to us? Paul goes on, it is applied to us from faith faith in other words faith alone faith alone not faith plus this not faith minus this not faith that looks like this just simply faith to faith faith alone This glorious act of God, the greatest act of God in all of eternity can be applied to sinners by faith alone. By no other means. Not by church membership. Not by baptism. Not by your family's heritage. Not by any means other than faith alone, in Christ alone, that brings salvation. God acted, God revealed, God offered His Son. And we are now bound to believe that, to accept that, to rest in that, as our only hope of salvation. Notice what Paul says, just a quick caveat here, a quick 
divergence for just a minute is the righteousness of God. That would mean it is the righteousness that comes from God, is consistent with God, is characteristic of God. How in the world will you ever attain to that standard? How in the world? How in the world can you ever attain to the righteousness that is God? What works exactly would that be that would get you there? What, what, what exactly could you do? I mean, think about anything we could do. The best thing we could do. We're talking about the righteousness that is of God. It makes him who he is. What works is that exactly? Remind me again that would equal that to make us accept. There isn't anything. So Paul says it must come by faith in Christ alone because Christ alone as God meets that standard. This is who God is. It's what he is. He knows the counterfeit. He sees the slightest derivation. He sees the slightest lack. And it is all or nothing. You are either righteous as God. It's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, which he's not saying they were saved, but Humanly speaking, they were the best people anybody knew and they couldn't even get to that level. And Jesus says, well, unless you go past that, indicating they hadn't been there either, you'll not see God. There is no work. There is no work that we can conform to. Should you do me a favor, go back in your Bibles quickly to Daniel chapter 9. For all the failings of the nation of Israel, they at times got it really right. Daniel 9 is one of those. We read this. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong though compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against Him. about a sinner's prayer this is it nor have we obeyed the voice of the lord that is yahweh the covenant faithful god the lord our god god elohim strong one creator nor have we obeyed our faithful god and our powerful god we've ignored both sides of that equation to walk in his teachings which He sat before us through his servants and the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds which He has done, but we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and Your people have become a reproach to those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of Your servants and to the supp- His supplications and For your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name. For we are not representing our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. What happens to them will reflect upon you. O oh God, hear our prayers and forgive us. May I submit to you that is the faith Paul speaks of in Romans 1.17. It is an acknowledgement of who God is. It is an acknowledgement of who we are and our desperate need for Him to work on our behalf. For we cannot work. I read a moment ago from Romans chapter 3. Let me conclude that brief reading in verse 27. Where then is boasting? Where is it? It is excluded, Paul says. It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, no. A law of faith, Paul says. Something greater than the law of works has come. It is a law of faith. And the righteousness of God is revealed for salvation. How? Not by your works, but by your faith. The faithfulness of God that is revealed for our salvation is revealed and applied and comes to us sola fide. Faith alone. The righteousness of God revealed by faith alone. And then Paul does what all good preachers do. He runs to the authority of Scripture and he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. It is written, the righteous live by faith. You see what happens when we live by faith? We are made the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul's prayer, Paul's heart, Paul's one thing is this, that I may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Same message, consistent, through and through. Twenty-eight years after Martin Luther ignited the Protestant Reformation in Wittenberg, Germany, by proclaiming and heralding this text, the Roman Catholic Church rose up and challenged in opposition to that at a place called Trent in northern Italy to try to give an answer to this newfound faith that is sweeping Europe at the time when people heard the Bible for themselves and they realized they could come to Christ apart from works of any kind. Without the church, they could come directly to Jesus who would save them. They had to answer this because it was destroying their tradition. They prepared a statement. And it said that the righteousness meant remission of sin and and moral transformation. Translated plainly, trust Jesus and keep working. The Bible says, don't go do, it's already done. Not more works. Christ did it all. Here's our answer, Trent. Christ alone. And faith alone. That's it. And that is what makes man righteous. By faith in Christ alone. If you're here this morning, say, you know, I don't know. I identify with what Israel said in, in Daniel chapter 9. I, I identify with that. I have sinned. I have disobeyed. I know I'm a sinner. I have no concept of what to do now. Well, you've come to the right place. You've come to the Word of God. Faith in Christ. Christ was born of a virgin therefore had no sin nature of his own, lived a perfect, obedient life for you in your place. He satisfied all of the holy requirements of the Father himself. Without fail, he then died and went to the cross to be punished for sin. But wait, he didn't have any. That's right, he took yours. And he bore your sin in his body on the cross Absorbing all of the wrath of God against that. So that if you by faith believe Him. And turn from your works. Sinful and pseudo-righteous combined. And turn to Christ. You will be saved. Plus nothing. Minus nothing. Would you believe that today? Would you trust that? Or maybe you're on the other side of the fence. Brian, I do believe that. 
I do trust that. I do know that I'm a sinner, but I know that Christ has died in my place and been raised from the dead for me. Then may I say to you, rest in Christ. It has been done. It is finished. God will require no more at your hand than what His Son has already offered on your behalf. You are free. Jesus said it, didn't He? He who the Son makes free is free indeed. Go in peace because Christ died in your place. What a glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, Only you know the hearts of each person listening this morning. Only you know their hearts. In fact, they don't even know. We don't even know our hearts like you do. We can be self-deceived. But you can't be deceived. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would work amongst these people in all of our hearts convict of sin where that is necessary, convince where that is necessary that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation, cause those who need it to abandon themselves and to rely fully upon Christ to trust Him and what He's done for them. That the joy of being freed in Him might be their reality now for those of us who have trusted. And yet Satan constantly nags and bombards us with doubts, with discouragements. May we even now look at Christ and say, oh, oh, to rest in Him. Owed it to have the righteousness of God transferred to my account because of Him? Who then will bring any charge against God's elect with Christ standing in the way? No one. And no thing. May we rest in that. May we rejoice in that. Even as now we Prepare to take your supper. Remember you in accordance with what we have heard this morning. May we eat and drink fresh and new as we reflect upon Christ, as we fellowship with Christ. For those who know Him, may be a sweet time, Lord. And as we prepare, would you... Holy Spirit, by your gracious aid, search hearts and minds and convince those who are here whether or not they should take. Because this is a precious time. It is an exclusive time for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. For those who are unashamed to proclaim Him in the waters of baptism as Paul was not ashamed of the Gospel, so let us not be ashamed. 
And for those who do not presently harbor sin that should not be there in their lives. Holy Spirit, convince us. Invite us to the table. Bring us to the table now for those who should eat and drink appropriately and let us do it with joy and thanksgiving knowing we have Christ. Our Savior, our Advocate. It's in His name we pray. Amen.